My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website at hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. All right. Well, if you guys want to, uh, if you haven't turned there yet, check out 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, That's where we're going to be a little bit today, checking it out in our walk through the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, So question, what are some things that make you extremely excited? Like what are, let's just throw some things out real quick. What are some things that give you joy, just put you in a good mood, uh, that elate you, if you will? What What are some of those things? Throw them out. Ice cream. Oh, yeah. So if you know it's coming, you're like, my day is better because I'm going to get some ice cream. Yes. Love it. What else? A burrito. A burrito bowl. Yes, absolutely. Or a a chalupa from Taco Bell, right? Yes, for sure. Uh, What else? What did somebody say? Huh? A day at the beach. Yeah, that's a good one. Who's a fan of vacation in general? Anyone? Yeah? I don't think I've met someone who's like, man, I really don't feel like going on vacation. No, thanks. That's cool. Um, Yeah, for sure. Good food. Uh, That, for me, is one. Empanada loca. Uh, Always a good day uh, if we're hitting up empanada loca. Um, Being with friends. I love uh, a day where we're just going to hang out, right? Being with family. Sometimes, right? Depends on who the family is, but uh, yeah, being with family. Um, how about this? I thought about this as I was thinking about it. Being on the other side of a deadline. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, man, that, that actually uh, brings me a lot of joy and uh, puts me in a good mood. Um, or just, just accomplishing something in general that you've set out for. Do you guys remember when like you, I mean, maybe, maybe you remember this, maybe you haven't done this yet, but like when you graduated high school and you were like, it's done, like it's over. But for me, it's whenever I graduated college and then I was like, no more school. I'm so excited about that, like no more school. That for me was something that was, uh, that just brought me a lot of joy. I don't know about you crazy people that like to go to college for uh, years and years and years and years, but, because uh, they may be in this room right now. But so I don't get it, but uh, I was really excited whenever it wasn't around anymore. But today, what we're gonna look at, this is a really cool chapter because we get to see, like we've seen Paul and we've seen him say things like, I am incredibly joyful, right? Except for whenever we read them in the, scripture, in the scriptures, it's, it comes off more like if somebody's reading it, it's like, I'm incredibly joyful, right? And so we understand that Paul is joyful, but I don't know if there's a better chapter. Maybe there is. Maybe you know a better chapter, but I don't know if there's a better chapter where you actually get to see Paul being joyful in his words. And we're going to break this down and we're going to talk about this. And hopefully this is just going to jump off the page for you and it's going to come alive and you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about with Paul being incredibly joyful. And he's been through a lot of stuff, a lot of trials, all kinds of things that he's been through. But in this chapter, he's, we get to actually see him be overly excited um, through his writings here. And so uh, we are going to just dig 
dig right into this, and uh, I want to take a look at what has him so elated. But before we talk about this, it's really, really important that we're on the same page as far as context is concerned, because in order to rightfully understand uh, what he's talking about here, there's some context that we need to understand. So this is going to be review for some of you guys. This is going to be maybe new for some of you guys, but I want to talk about what led Paul to this point, to these words, so that we can understand the joy that was coming from his mouth whenever he said these things, all right? So um, we're going to talk just a little bit about a history of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth, and, uh, and I have it right there listed. So if you want to remember how things went down, you can even write those things down and remember. But Paul, at the very beginning, you guys know that in the book of Acts, he went to Corinth and he planted this church, all right? He was hanging out, in, like he just went to Corinth. He's like, these people don't know about Jesus. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. There were people that were listening and they were like, holy moly, this is the greatest thing ever. And they all came together and they were like, "Let we believe this. And so he baptized people, not him totally, but, uh, but they baptized people and they started a church. And they were there, and things were going really, really well. I call them the glorious beginnings. And Paul loved them, and they loved Paul, all right? And, and he treated them like they were his own kids. Like he loved them so incredibly much, and he watched them mature in their faith. And he was with them for about a year and a half, spending his life with them and leading them in, in their discipleship of their faith, right? And then time came. Paul, he's a church planter. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep moving. So he's moving on. And he's going to go over to Ephesus next, but he's got to leave Corinth. And so he leaves the church. And he's like, all right, you guys know what to do. So just continue to do that. Leaves it in good hands of some trustworthy people, but he's got to go, all right? So he packed up and he moved on. But then, as you guys know, and as what we've talked about, is Corinth was just a very, very immoral place. And so some problems start to arise within the church. And in fact, instead of the church making an impact in the world, the world was making more of an impact in the church. And there started to be some corruption that was seeking into the church. And the people were no longer seeking holiness like they were when Paul was with them. But they were rather, they were trying to justify their own sin inside of the church, right? So things were going unchecked by leadership. And soon you had a real problem that was going on. And instead of outward, instead of like an outward like look that the church had, they had now started to turn inward and to start to look at themselves and they were fighting and there were started to be some divisions in the church. And rather than a family for the purpose of the gospel, they were a family for the purpose of themselves. You really couldn't even call them a family very well anymore. They were, they were kind of a messed up family at this point because they were all just fighting and they were bickering. And so Paul hears about this and he's like, I'm going to write them a letter and I'm going to address these things that are going on in the church. We don't know what that letter says. We don't have it. It's a lost letter, but he makes reference to that letter in first Corinthians. So we know that there was something that was written because they write him a letter and they're kind of talking about some things that he had mentioned to them. So we kind of know that there was some letter that Paul wrote to them, but that letter didn't do a whole lot for them. Plus, there were some false teachers that had kind of come into Corinth as well. And we call them Judaizers because what they were is they were people that came in and they tried to discredit Paul. They were saying, hey, listen, everyone, I know that Paul was here, but 
Paul, was he even really an apostle in the first place? Does he really have the credentials of being an apostle? And all the church in Corinth is like, yeah, like, what about that? Is he real? Like, they start to kind of doubt what's going on, and they start to doubt Paul in general. And then they started teaching, like, yeah, I know that he taught that it was, like, through grace alone, through faith that you're saved, but it's not just that. You, like, do you really think God wanted the entire law to just go away? You think he created the whole thing just to say it's no more? No. Come on, you guys... You, you can't believe what Paul is saying. Of course the law is part of it as well. And the church at Corinth is going, okay, yeah, we think that's probably true. And so they start to say some things about Paul. They start to believe some things about Paul. And Paul's catching wind of all of these things that are going on. And the church ends up writing a letter to Paul. And, uh, and so some of the leadership in the church are like, we're going to ask Paul some of these questions. Paul, you need to defend yourself on some of these things. So Paul receives this letter from them. And it's actually kind of, from what we can tell, sort of a, a little bit of a disrespectful letter. And it's kind of written in a disrespectful way as if trying to get Paul to prove himself. Are you really an apostle? Is it really? I mean, do you really? What about these things, Paul? Because these new shiny teachers that have showed up. Like, they're saying these kinds of things. So what do you have to say against that? And so they're kind of, they're kind of I don't know, trying to trip him up a little bit, ask him to defend himself. And that's when Paul writes 1 Corinthians. That's the letter that we have of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's like, look, I'm going to address some of these things. And he gives them an incredibly great, like, great book of instruction, a letter of instruction, and also defends his own credentials. And we talked about that whenever we went through 1 Corinthians. And he sent that letter to Corinth with Timothy. So Timothy shows up in Corinth and he brings the letter. And if you guys remember, whenever we finished first, first Corinthians, it ended like on a good note, right? We all finished first Corinthians and we're like, yeah, like that's going to be awesome. They're going to get that letter and they're just going to repent and they're just going to like turn back to God and there's going to be no more division anymore. Like everything's going to be great in the church. But it turns out that whenever you open up second Corinthians, you find out, oh, wow. So they didn't receive that first letter or that, I guess it's the second letter at well at all right and so it's kind of it's kind of a sad thing and you're like man that was so good his words were so good um, and we had high hopes but the large majority of the church rejected Timothy who brought the letter and they rejected Paul's letter in general and now Paul goes into kind of this time of just like grief out of the love that he has for the church when he finds out that they didn't listen to him because again Paul loves this church and one thing scripture lets us see is that Paul was absolutely broken hearted. And there are a few reasons why, but I think the main reason, one of the main reasons was that he deeply and truly loved the people who were the church in Corinth. So much so that to watch them go in the direction that they were headed caused him extreme pain and it caused him extreme grief. He, he did not like the fact that they were not turning back to God because he wanted what was best for them. And, and Paul, he's an inspiration to me for many reasons. Many reasons, but one that's at the top of the list is his selfless love for others, even when they do the opposite of loving him back. He still pursues them. He still chases after them and he still loves them. And I love that he does that about them. And of course he was able to do that because the root of his love was not in love for himself, like so many people's is and how mine can be sometimes, but rather out of a love that Christ has for him. That's why he was able to love them so well, because it's easy to love people who love you, right? 
You guys agree with that? It's easy to love. Like, if somebody comes up to me like, Greg, you are the greatest. I just appreciate you so much. This is so good. Like, it's hard for me to look at them and go, I don't like you very much. Right? We love those people. It's easy to love those people. But it's those people who, who walk out and they talk about you and they try to slander you and all of this. Like, your first reaction is not like, I love them so much. Like, your first reaction is like, No, like you kind of want to hit back, right? But that's not Paul. And you see, I think that the reason that sometimes we have that reaction is because the the motivation for the love we have for other people is often rooted in ourselves. It's more of a, what can you do for me, right? Even whenever I love someone back who loves me, it can be rooted in selfishness because as soon as they change their mind, then I can change my mind as well. But the thing is, is that Paul, his love for the church in Corinth was not rooted in himself. It was rooted in a love that God had for him. If you guys remember in 1 John, John said, we love because why? He first loved who? Us. We love because he first loved. Not we love because people love us. We love because, you know, what, how nice these people are. He says, John says, we love because he first loved us. And Paul lived this out. He's like, I cannot get over the fact that God loves me. And so I'm going to love people in the same way because he saw them like Jesus saw them as just sheep without a shepherd. That's how he saw them. And so Paul was able to continue to love this church, even though they were saying things about him. And we'll talk about it in more in just a little bit, but actually he couldn't help but still have pride in them even though they were treating him this way. And he mentions it a little bit later in this chapter, but here's what Paul does. So he hears that 1 Corinthians, the the letter that he wrote that we call 1 Corinthians, he sees that it didn't stick. And so he decides to do something incredibly hard. There's a revival going on in Ephesus. And Paul's like, that's why I haven't come to you yet. There's a revival going on there. And Paul's like, but I can't stay here. I've got to go back to Corinth. And I've got to, I've got to find, I've got to talk to them. We have to be together. And what Paul calls uh, this visit, we don't know what he said. We, We know that it was hard. We know that some things that he said were incredibly harsh. And we know that some things that were said to him were incredibly harsh as well, because he kind of alludes to that in the book of second Corinthians, but he goes and he visits them and he walks away and he has said the things that he feel like he, that he felt like that he needed to say in hopes that they would then turn back to the Lord in hopes that they would then love him again as well. And whenever he left, he kind of makes, he kind of alludes to the fact that they said some, some pretty nasty things to him as well. And so whenever Paul left, and he calls it that painful visit, he left and he goes back to Ephesus, he's, he's devastated. He is absolutely devastated because it did not work out. What he hoped would happen did not work out. And I can only imagine the pain and the brokenheartedness that he felt in that feeling of, have you ever loved someone so much that you watched them go a direction that you know is not the best for them? And you try to talk to them and you try to coach them and you try to tell them, hey, it's probably gonna be better if you go this way, but they will not listen to you. And then you just have to sit back and watch them take themselves through total devastation in their own lives. It's one of the most helpless things one of the most helpless things that I can think of. Like, like when I think about nightmares for myself spiritually, like, like I, I don't ever want to have to watch my kids walk away from the Lord. I don't want to ever have to watch my kids go a direction that is opposite of God. 
because that will be one of the most hurtful things that I probably could ever watch happen. And, and that's kind of, you know, Paul is watching these people that he loves so much and, and, and he just has to watch them. But did Paul dump them and move on? No. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have patience that seems to only last a little while. But if I'm, if I'm constantly going after someone and they just constantly reject me, there's probably a moment where I'm just gonna go, okay. Like, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go. But Paul doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to write them another letter. And, he's, and we're gonna see in just a second, we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter two, but he didn't wanna go back and visit them again. He did not want to experience another painful visit again. And so Paul is like, I'm going to write them a letter. And in this letter, it's almost like, I don't know if it's a last ditch effort in this letter or what exactly was in this thing, but he refers to this letter as a severe letter. That's what he calls it himself. And we can just assume that Paul laid everything out there because what he wrote in it, whatever it was, while he gave it, while it was en route to Corinth, via Titus. He had given it to Titus to go deliver to them. While it was en route, he couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. We also know that while he wrote that severe letter, he just had tears of grief the whole time that he was writing it. And it's an incredibly, incredibly sad thing, but he knew that he needed to do it. And so he writes it to them and he gives it to Titus and he says, just go. And, and in fact, he gets so restless that he ends up leaving Ephesus to go try to find Titus because he's like, I don't know what's going on right now, but I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't stand the anxiety that I'm going through knowing that I had written this to them and I haven't heard anything back yet. Titus should have delivered it by now and in fact, he should be on his way back here by now. And so Paul decides, I'm gonna pack up, I'm gonna head over and I'm gonna go to Troas and then I don't find him at Troas, I'm gonna go on to Macedonia and I'm gonna look for him. And so Paul goes and he looks for them there. And actually in this chapter, um, in, in chapter seven, we get to see how they responded to that severe letter. And I, even though like I know the Bible, you know, like even, like even though I watch Titanic, every time I watch it again, I'm like, maybe the boat won't sink this time, right? But it's probably gonna sink. But like, even though I know like what happens, whenever I'm reading this, I love it because you get brought to the brink and you're like on Paul's side. You're like, man, I hope that they listen. I hope that this happens. Like we left First Corinthians and we were like, man, I hope they listened. I knew they didn't listen. But even though I got to the end of First Corinthians, like maybe they listened. They didn't listen. And you get to the end of, like you get into chapter seven and you're like, I know there was a severe letter. What happened? Did they receive it? How did it go, right? And so we're gonna pick up, and actually, when, like Rachel read verse five, she started in verse five, and actually Paul is picking up the story where he left off in chapter two. If you remember back in chapter two, Paul was in the middle of telling a story. I don't know if you remember this, but we actually said this. Paul's in the middle of telling a story, and then it's like he got sidetracked for a second. Well, now he's coming back to it. So he spent all of chapter two, the rest of chapter two, three, four, five, and six, like in a parenthetical statement, 
right? So he's just like, oh, and by the way, in parentheses, chapter two, three, four, five, and six. Now let's get back to it in chapter seven, all right? So let me remind you what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter two, verse one through four, before he got sidetracked. Uh, and it'll be here on the screen. He says, in two, he said, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. And, and as you guys know, 2 Corinthians is a response to Titus's report about them. He says, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did. So that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. You see the love that Paul has for them? It's incredible. I wrote that letter in great anguish. What letter? That severe letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I did not want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. Verse 12, he says, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ. So he's now looking for Titus. He's like, he's left Ephesus. He's like, I'm going to go looking for Titus. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me, but I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye to Troas and I went on to Macedonia to find Titus. Now, and then like you see the very next thing, it's like he talks about something completely different and he talks about it all the way up until this point in chapter seven. So look at what he says in chapter seven, verse five. He says, so when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. So now we're in chapter seven. Let's unpack this a little bit and let's really get into what he's talking about. And Paul just lets them know right now that things were piling up for him. Not only was he sick from like fear on the inside, just thinking about how the church was going to respond to his letter. But in Macedonia, he was met with more persecution, even from the outside. So here's Paul. He's completely worried about the church in Corinth. He just wants to hear something back from Titus. He's going in search of Titus. He shows up in Macedonia. He's talking about the Lord. On the inside, he's gutted. He just can't, he, he can't focus. He's having such a hard time, yet he's trying to press on. And he's like, but not only on the inside, not only on the inside am I, am I suffering, but even when I show up in Macedonia, they continue to persecute me. So I'm even suffering on the outside as well. And so Paul was not just at a low point in his life in this moment. He's letting them know that I was at an extreme low point in my life in this moment. But I love how Paul glorifies God through every gift that God gives. Look at verse six. He says, but God who encourages those who are discouraged. And, and I don't like that word discouraged, translated discouraged, because like in our day and age, whenever we see the word discouraged, we just think, oh, poor guy, he's just discouraged, right? Like that's not what that word means there. It means a complete like lacking in hope. That's what Paul was feeling. He was like, I'm being persecuted on the outside. I don't know what's happening on the inside. My family that I love in Corinth, there's not like, I don't know what's going on. He was completely depressed. He was lacking hope. And he says, but God who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. He looked up and he saw Titus and he said, sweet, there's my friend. That's who I've been looking for this whole time. I just cannot help. I cannot wait to see what he has to say. And isn't it just like God to bring some hope, right? Whenever you're at your lowest point, the Lord does that. 
He really does. And if you're in a low point and you're like, I don't see any hope, if you're like a low, low, low point and you don't see any hope, I promise God will give it to you. If you are searching in his word, you will find so much hope that God will encourage you with. He really will. God is, God is that good to us. We don't deserve it, but he does that to us. And, I, and, and guys, as I've been a church planter, I have seen this happen over and over and over again. Like I've told you before, but like when I... When I was like serving at the last church I was in, and it's like this big, humongous church, like I, I, I knew faith, I'd heard about it, like I was acquainted with it, right? Like I kind of knew that God provided because I saw in his word that he did. I knew that whenever someone was at their lowest point that, that God had provided because I'd seen him, I'd heard stories, I'd read it in the Bible that he does that and I'd seen stories that he had done that. But it wasn't until I moved here and I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing to rely on, no budget to rely on, like paying rent that's stupid, right? Like it's just insane. And you're just like, Lord, like I'm gonna do this even though everyone tells me this is dumb. Like you should 100% not do this. You're gonna go rent? You don't rent, you buy. Like this is what you're told to do your whole entire life to be financially responsible. So everyone from every logical standpoint, they're like, do not go and do it. And we're like, but we have to. Like we have to because this is what God's calling us to do. We stepped out and I got to experience everything that I'd only heard about whenever we stepped out in this. And it has immensely grown my faith in God immensely grown my trust in God because sometimes when I'm at my lowest point and you guys I've told you about it before but but I don't know bad news just seems to, to come often <laughs> you know like it really does but God but God doesn't ever not respond with faith on his part and it's a beautiful thing to watch like you guys know that we moved here with a couple of elders and we were like, man, this is good. We got this thing going. And within the span of three weeks, they both told me they were moving. That was a low point, like discouraged, like and that we just saw, like that was me in that moment. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And you guys know that within, and I've shared this, but within, I mean, like I'm in that moment. It's almost, it's almost like I looked up and saw Titus because it was in that moment that, that I got a text message from Trevor, who you guys met. And he was like, hey, I want you to know that we're, we're moving to New York and, and we wanna be a part of Hope Community. I looked up and there was Titus. He just looked like Trevor. It's incredible. Like, but, but can I just tell you that God constantly does that? Like he constantly does that. So much so that now, like whenever I get some bad news, I almost get excited. Because I'm like, well, I wonder what God's going to do, right? Like, it's cool to kind of be in that place where it's like, I mean, go ahead, like, bring it on because I know God's going to do something. And I love that because it's such a great example of that right here. Paul at his lowest point, he looks up and he's like, thank you. Thank you. Like, this is him. This is who I've been look looking for. And just seeing his face was an encouragement to Paul. Look at verse 7. It says, his presence was a joy. But so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us how much 
You long to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I was filled with joy, exclamation point. Like Paul is fired up. Why? Is it because he was, you know, filled with joy because he had, he had won some debate with the church in Corinth? Where he's like, do this. And they're like, we're not doing this. And he's like, do this. We're not doing this. And then the church was like, okay, we'll do it. And then Paul was like, yeah, I won. No, it wasn't because he wasn't joyful because he had won this thing. He wasn't filled with joy because people who didn't like him all of a sudden liked him now. He didn't have a complex because they didn't like him. That's not what filled him with joy either. He was joyful because the longing they had to see him, the sorrow they felt for the pain that they had caused him, and the loyalty that they had rekindled was a sign of something infinitely more important and valuable to Paul. Their restored love for Paul was a sign of their restored love for God. That is why Paul was so excited. That is why Paul was so joyful, because he just wanted to see their relationship restored with the Lord, because he loved them so, so much. A love for God will not only bring a love for God's word, but also a love for those who faithfully teach it. And guys, I've been in ministry for, um, you know, relatively a long time. Uh, I became a youth pastor back in like 04, and there's some people in this room that are like, I wasn't even born yet. Shut up. <laughs> but I can relate pretty well um, to having people not like me because I'm a pastor or because I'm a youth pastor, like people who I've taught, people who have like been a part of my ministries. And... Uh, as I try to lead people to follow Christ and to kind of seek God with their whole lives, when people are doing that and I'm leading them, it's, it's crazy because they appreciate me. Like there's a love for me in that. Uh, and they kind of seek me out and they want me to be involved in their lives. But when people decide that they'd rather do things on their own than seek God instead with their whole heart, they not only like remove me from their lives, but I've had some people attack my character, question my ability as a teacher of the Word of God, talk about me in a hateful and disapproving way to others. Like, and, I, and, and sometimes I deserve some of that, all right? Like, I'm not sitting up here saying, like, I am the, uh, like, no. I'm saying, like, whenever people who have, who have trusted me with their spiritual growth walk away from God, they can be some of the most hurtful people. And they can say some pretty harsh things. And it's no fun to be caught up in the middle of that. And it, and, and it does hurt. And I have gone after people like Paul did to the church in Corinth. And it, and it has ended poorly. It has ended very poorly with some hurt words that had been said. But I cannot describe to you the joy that comes from a text or like a direct message of a former student who just in a moment just messaged me and just says, I just need you to know that I am appreciative. I know that, that I've said some bad things whenever I walked away from the Lord, but I want you to know that I'm appreciative of how you didn't give up on me 
and that I can even message you right now. And I just appreciate it so much and I want you to know that I'm now walking with the Lord where I am. There are fewer things in this world that bring me joy and excitement than that right there. And, and, and let me just say this. If you're part of your testimony, all right, is that you were following after the Lord and then you walked away from the Lord and you kind of cut ties with whoever it was that put a lot of work into discipling you and you haven't messaged them yet to thank them and also to say that you're doing well spiritually right now, do that because I promise it will be one of the greatest encouragements that someone can receive. The motivation that Paul had in pursuing the church in Corinth like he did was not so they would be friends again. It was so they would be in fellowship again with their creator who loves them and who guides them towards an abundant life on this planet. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think it was easy for Paul to go there like he did and then to come back and write a severe letter like he did? No, Paul's not a weirdo, okay? Like Paul isn't like, I just really like getting in people's business, right? He's not like seeking to, to hurt people. That's not, that's not what he wants to do. That's not who he is. It was very difficult. And it's difficult for anyone who's doing it from a place of love. But look what he says in verse eight. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. But then look what he says, though I did regret it. <laughs> for I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. I love this because he's like, I don't regret the letter I sent, but man, there were moments that I regretted the letter that I sent. Like that's exactly what he's saying right here. And I think we can all relate to that. Do you, do you ever, maybe you guys have been in this situation before, but do you ever second guess yourself or doubt yourself uh, on something that you said in a moment of honesty with someone else? You ever been in that situation before? You know, where you just had kind of like this moment of honesty and you're just like, I'm just going to put this out there. And then what's the worst? Like waiting, especially if you do it like through a text message or something. And then you're like, oh, well, I sent it like can't undo that. Right. And then you're just kind of sitting there in that moment, in that moment for a second. And then and then you're like, you know, you're finally just like you're regretting your whole decisions of everything. Right? Like, especially when, when you don't hear back for a second, you're like, okay, well, I just did, I just, I just did something incredibly terrible, incredibly terrible. Uh, we always, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I jump to worst case scenarios. Does anybody else jump to absolutely worst case scenarios? Yeah, me too. And like, all of a sudden I'm like making up this world in my mind where the person hates me now. Right? I mean, and this is in the course of what, 60 seconds? Like, I mean, that if you don't immediately hear back, like all of a sudden you're like, well, I just ruined that relationship. They hate me. They're, ne they're never going to talk to me again, right? And you're just kind of freaking out about so I shouldn't have been that honest. Um, uh, now they're mad at me. Uh, now they hate me. They think I'm stupid. Our relationship is ruined. Now every time we see each other, it's going to be awkward and there's going to be tension and it's going to be terrible and everything's going to be bad. And you've got this whole world in your mind now built up of a broken relationship with someone that's not even real. Not even real yet, right? And so for the foreseeable future, you're like, things are going to be terrible. And then all of a sudden you get a text back that says, totally agree. Thank you for that. And in your mind, you're just like, yeah, I don't regret a thing. Right? Like that's kind of, if you read this, he's like, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. But though I did regret it. 
for the letter, for in that letter it grieved you in the first place, right? And so this is essentially kind of the emotional roller coaster that Paul has been on as he waited for Titus to come back with this news. And there were moments of like sincere panic uh, in sending it because he knew the potential hurt that it would bring them. And it actually hurt them, is what it says in the scripture. It actually did grieve them. But now he's incredibly glad that he sent it. And I just wanna pause for a moment and admire Paul for loving them enough and the courage it took to chase after them with what they needed to hear and not with what they wanted to hear. And I think we need to hear that in our day and age today because we live in a society where people would call you telling them what they need to hear instead of what they want to hear as judgmental and unloving. But that's the opposite of what Paul was doing. People today define loving them as allowing them to live however they want without any say of opposition. But surely if we loved someone, we would guide them away from a cliff no matter how joyfully they were skipping towards it, right? If you're skipping towards it, I don't care how happy you are, I'm running out there and I'm snatching you. And I'm gonna say, there's this cliff. Even if you're like, I don't care, right? I'm gonna pull you away from that cliff. I don't care how happy you are going towards it. It's going to, why? Because I love you. And it's not judgmental. It's absolutely loving. It's the most loving thing that we can do. And sometimes a tough word that brings hurt is the most loving thing we can do. And look, if that just fueled something in you, then don't go and say anything to anyone, all right? Like, if all of a sudden you were like, I've just been waiting for that, let me pull out my phone, and now we're gonna like, just chill out, all right? Like, just go ahead and pray about whatever it is that you're about to send, uh, because we're not going out and we're not seeking to hurt people. But if there's a reservation in you and you're like, man, I just see them, their lives being destroyed and I feel like I need to say something, but I'm afraid that they won't like me, pray about it. Say it in the most loving way that you possibly can and go after them because you love them. Go after them like you love them, all right? So Paul's rejoicing, not in the fact that he hurt them, he's rejoicing in the result that the hurt caused. And I pray that if that happens in your life, you'll be able to result because of the hurt that, because of the result of, that the hurt caused. But verse nine and 10, he says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So I wanna pause for a second, because that word repenting, literally means to change your mind about something. He's like, because you were grieved into changing your mind. Changing your mind about what? Changing their mind about the gospel, what they were starting to believe. Changing their mind about letting sin infiltrate their church. They were now, instead of saying, ah, it's fine, it's gonna be good, they were now saying, no, we cannot do this. Paul is right. We have got to because we are grieving God. We are going against, going against what he says. So we cannot be, they, they've literally changed their mind about it. And some people say that repenting means to turn from going one direction into the other. Have you guys ever heard that before? Like whenever somebody says, you know, to repent, you're going this way. And in order to repent, like it means that you turn away from the way that you're going and go the other way, right? And I agree that that does happen. But repenting is deeper than that. And man, there's going to be some people, hopefully, I needed to hear this. There's going to be some people, hopefully, in the room that need to hear this or watching online, listening podcasts, whatever, need to hear this. But I can turn someone from going one direction to going the opposite simply through behavioral modifications. I can do that. Like, I can make you go a certain way. Like, if my kid does something wrong, 
and I tell them that if they do it again, they are grounded, will they turn from going one direction to going the opposite direction? Yeah, they're gonna, because they don't want to be grounded. But if they haven't changed their mind about what they did wrong and see it as wrong, they haven't come to believe that it is wrong, then they have not repented. That's not what repent, that, that's not what repentance is. And this describes so many Christians in our world today. The Bible says that we're to repent from sin. In other words, we're to see sin like God sees sin. See the evil that it is. See the harm that it causes. See the destruction that it brings. We're supposed to be disgusted by it. We're supposed to be broken that we ever took part in it and go from loving it to hating it. That is what repentance is. That's what repentance brings about. But so many Christians are refraining from sin with an unrepentant heart. Did you know you can do that? You can refrain from sin without a repentant heart. They're only afraid that God will be unhappy with them. I'm not gonna do those things because I don't want God to be unhappy with me. That's not repentance. But people are convinced that what they have done is repented because they're no longer doing the thing they know they're not supposed to be doing. But the truth is, they still have a draw towards it and they still have an affection for it. If there is a poisoned cookie and I tell my kids, don't eat the cookie or you will be in trouble, have I removed the affection they have for the cookie? No, they still want it, especially if it's an Oreo. My kids will still desire a poisoned cookie. So here's a statement. Show me a sin that you have an affection for, something that you love, and I'll show you a sin that you have not yet repented of. Because we will not love, we will not have an affection for sins that we have repented from. True repentance brings a godly grief towards sin. Look what he says here next. He says, for you felt, this is verse nine, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are two, times, two types of grief. Listen to this statement. If you refrain, and I'm going to put this up here on you, for you guys, because this is something you can like meditate on, think through. If you refrain from sin without repenting from sin, you will die in sin. But if your repentance from sin leads to a refrain from sin, you will live. So I don't have time to just go all, all over that and in depth of that, take a picture of it, whatever you gotta do, write it down. But think about that, all right? The first is a worldly grief and repentance that does not produce salvation. The second is a godly grief and repentance that produces salvation. I saw this quote and I thought it was good. Godly grief is remorse caused by having lost God's approval. Worldly grief is remorse caused by having lost the world's approval. It's good stuff. We see people all the time get caught for doing something. And if it's a worldly grief, 
then they have remorse because they got caught. It's, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of grief that Judas showed. If you guys remember him in scripture, bad guy. It's the kind of, it's the kind of like, we know that he gave the money back and he felt bad for what he did, but it was not a godly grief. It was a worldly grief. But we look at people like David in scripture. There's a great example of someone who had a godly grief. Because he knew that he had sinned against God. He said, I have sinned against you and you alone. And, uh, and so there's a difference there. But look at, look at what uh, further what godly grief looks like. And I love this. And I hope this describes your life. Like there are people that come up to me and they're like, I don't know if I'm saved. Like, I don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. This right here will help you immensely. Or if somebody comes up to you and says anything like that, this will help you immensely. Because look at what he says. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let's talk about this just for a second. What does repentance look like? What does a godly grief produce in us? The first thing he says there that I've underlined for you there, hopefully, did I underline it? Yeah, is earnestness, all right? Earnestness, what is that? Do you desire to not only refrain from sin, but to live for God? Not just say, I'm, I, I don't, don't want to sin, but do you have a desire? Is there something inside of you? Is there a fire that says, I want to live for the Lord? Godly grief, true repentance produces an eagerness to live a holy life. Is there something inside of you that goes, I want to be holy because God is holy? That is a sign of true repentance, and that is a sign that you have experienced actual godly grief that leads to salvation. Do you desire a Christ-like life? Do you desire to do the will of God? And next he says, eagerness to clear yourselves. He talks about indignation. Let's talk about those together. This means you look back at your life with disgust and regret on how you lived in rebellion to God. Whenever you think about your old life, can you, can you hardly think about it? Do you not want to think about it? We talked about it a little bit earlier, but you cringe at the thought of who you used to be. You're actually embarrassed by who you were before Christ, and you don't want to be known for that life anymore, but you want to seek a reputation of godliness. This is a sign of true repentance. Has that happened in your own life? Is that kind of repentance happened? And then he says, fear. And I think this is a realization of who you've sinned against. It's like that, oh, shoot moment of realizing that you were not just in rebellion, but you were in rebellion to the creator of all things. That moment where you just are just washed in fear of going, I cannot believe that I have sinned against the creator. And people who have truly repented, they've had that godly grief, they feel this. That is, that is what repentance feel, feels like. And then he says longing. This is in regards to a restored relationship. It's that prayer, like I just said a second ago, that David prayed, God, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. And David is longing again for that closeness with God. Do you have a, do you have a longing for, a, for being in fellowship with God? for being close to him. And then he says zeal. And what zeal is, is this is a deep concern for and a devotion towards 
God and the things of God? Do you have a deep concern for the things of God? Do you have a deep concern for God? And do you have a devotion towards God and the things of God? Like, do, do you, are you passionate about the things of God? Are you passionate about God in general? Does it drive you to go and to crazily go to Washington Square Park and like set up and, and just be like in the midst of all these people who you know are, are in need of salvation, but you know are probably also gonna be largely against what it is that you have to say, but, but the, just the drive that God has given you and the zeal that he's given you for him just pushes you out there to do incredibly uncomfortable things because you know that these people are just, again, sheep without a shepherd. You think about the prophet Jeremiah. God was like, hey, I want you to go and I want you to tell these people, but I also want you to know they're never gonna listen to you. But I want you to keep telling them. And I want you to keep telling them. And, and, and Jeremiah gets arrested. He gets put in the stocks. Like he experiences all this terrible stuff because he's doing what God has called him to do. And then at one, mo- at one point in his, ni- in his life, in, in chapter 20, I think, verse 9, he's like, look, I'm no longer going to do this anymore. Like I'm done. But then in the same breath, he says, but I, but I can't because there's a fire that is in my bones and I cannot stop talking about what God wants me to talk about. Do you have a fire in your bones, a zeal for the things of God and for God? And by the way, we also know that if we have a zeal for the things of God, then we are also, as a byproduct, going to have a deep opposition towards anything that opposes God and the things of God. A truly repentant person will love the things God loves and hates the things that God hates. That's what he does inside of us. Knowing that God only hates those things that bring anything but the best for us and for his glory. So understand this, God is against any and all things that fall short of the best for us. He is against those things that harm us, whether we see how they harm us or not. And then he talks about punishment, which is a desire to see justice served, for good to prevail and for evil to be punished. And he closes out in verse 13. He kind of gives them this final thing in chapter 7. He just says, therefore, we are comforted. Why? Because they've shown signs of true repentance. He's just been fired up about that. And he says, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus. I love that because he's like, we were happy because Titus was happy. Like after hanging out with you guys, it brought us joy to see how much joy that Titus had after being with you. Because last time he sent someone by the name of Timothy, Timothy did not come back happy. All right. Timothy did not come back joyful. It was terrible. So he saw how happy Titus was and it made him happy as well. He says, because his spirit, Titus's spirit had been, had been refreshed by you all, y'all for whatever boasts. I made to him about you. Listen to this. For whatever boasts, Paul was boasting to Titus about Corinth. After all that Corinth had put Paul through, what could Paul do? He just continued to boast about the church in Corinth. He says, for whatever boasts I made in him about you, 
I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus had proved true. He's saying, I knew it. I knew that your salvation was real. I knew that it was genuine. I never doubted it. I loved you so much and I knew it and I never doubted it. And rather than talk bad about the church in ever, Paul never once spoke ill of the church in Corinth, no matter how much they put him through. And rather than talk bad about the church in Corinth, even when they were talking bad about him, Paul was doing nothing but bragging about them and talking about how proud he was of them, even to Titus. And you know what they did? They proved Paul right. They proved him right. I love that. I love, I love his complete attitude towards this church because it's incredibly convicting to my own life. But, I, but, but because I'm so zealous for the things of God, it makes me want that. Like, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be like. That's what I need to be like. And then he says this, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, y'all how you received him with fear and trembling. He says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What an awesome ending to a very dramatic relationship. And he never gave up on them. He pursued them to the point that they restored their relationship back to God. May we love people and may we chase after people with that kind of love to see them restored back to a relationship with God. Do you guys remember what he talked about a couple of just chapters ago? What did he say we were? He said we were reconciled so that we could be ministers of what? Reconciliation. We have the privilege of being ministers of reconciliation. And people who see it as a privilege don't give up on other people. People who, people who see it as a job will give up on other people. But if it's a privilege, you will not give up on people. Chase after them because you want what's best for them and what's best for them is a relationship that is restored back to fellowship with their God. And I've got to ask myself the question, do I love people like this? And I have to transparently stand up here in front of all of you and say, I do not. And I look into this and I go, but I need to and I want to and hold me accountable to it. And I hope that I can hold you accountable to it as well. I hope that we can be that real with one another, that we spur one another on to seek holiness and to chase after God. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.